Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. My name is Colby Atchison. I'm joined today by Dr. Patrick Egan and Jason Barney. And today we're going to be having an interesting discussion about the nature and relationship of moral virtues and intellectual virtues. So if you're looking for more of a practical session on how you want to implement virtue in the classroom, you might check out a different episode that we recently recorded. But today we're going next level philosophical on the relationship and how they interact, this idea of a moral virtue and an intellectual virtue. It's really interesting when you look at particular views about what a moral virtue is, what an intellectual virtue is, and how those sort of interact and play together. And you can compare Aristotle's work with, say, modern research in the field of hermeneutics, modern thought in terms of uh, how we approach texts and what disposition we are to have from a virtue standpoint with regards to ideas intellectually, as well as our behaviors morally. And so um, to kick us off in this, um, Jason, would you would you rehash, you know, what what does Aristotle say about this? And and what's your concern with some of the, I would say, the hermeneutical approach? Yeah, I, I think that Aristotle has a nice line of clear distinctions in my mind between moral and intellectual virtues. And I've come to be convinced by that and the importance of it. And so For instance, when I was in, uh, say, a philosophy class in uh, undergraduate education, there was at times talk of intellectual virtues, and they would often mention things like courage or humility as intellectual virtues, which I think uh, Dr. Patrick Egan is going to advocate for. But what I found, I guess I would say, surprising the more I went into Aristotle was, was how how kind of zeroed in he was on that there are only these five intellectual virtues or uh, faculties in which the human mind like approaches truth correctly. And so they have to do with affirming or denying something as being true, intellectually speaking. And and he had a kind of a, a pretty clear distinction between those and the moral virtues. And when he starts listing off his intellectual virtues, they aren't things that we tend to talk about when we say, you know, there might be a popular book on intellectual virtues that would list things uh, and popular in an academic sense, I would say. I mean, really the idea of an intellectual virtue isn't probably popular at all these days, but the idea is that when he says an intellectual virtue or an intellectual excellence, he means these five things of like artistry or craftsmanship in something, you know, um, prudence or practical wisdom, uh, scientific knowledge or episteme, intuition, and then uh, philosophic wisdom. And those are his five. And um, they all have to do with the intellect perceiving or justifying truth in some way. And so I found that kind of refreshingly 
simple and clear and it and it kind of rejigged how I viewed the mind and intellect in a lot of ways. And I thought it was just confusing maybe to talk about, say, intellectual courage as if that were um, a virtue of the mind when what's, from my vantage point, what's really getting in the way of, of you taking in new viewpoints or stating your own is that you like you're you're influenced by fear and so you're not courageous because you're worried about what people will think or what they would think of the truth so so i would say that that kind of moral virtue of lacking courage is getting in the way of your intellectual endeavor but that the the actual intellectual virtue would be something like scientific knowledge instead so that's a that's i guess where where I found uh, Aristotle's distinctions to be helpful and potentially clearing up like what's going on where. So to summarize, Jason, it sounds like you have a concern with thinking of humility and courage as intellectual virtues. You'd really preserve the list of intellectual virtues to something very similar to what Aristotle has in mind and you're, you're not sure that it's appropriate to think of humility and courage other than as moral virtues. Patrick, what, what are your thoughts on this? So I, I very much appreciate the, the five intellectual virtues that Aristotle spells out. And I think where the intellectual virtues come from is, is probably a more modern type of problem that stems from things like critical reasoning, critical epistemology that comes out of the Enlightenment and where we have to justify our, our reasoning of kind of a modern epistemology. As a New Testament scholar, you know, just dealing with hermeneutics of suspicion, for instance, where the biblical text is doubted as the first move of modern interpretation. It was in that framework that I first started investigating uh, what we might call analytic philosophy to address some of those concerns, to start applying the idea of intellectual humility, where, where one would sit under a text as opposed to over a text. There's this great phrase from Adolf Schlatter, where he says, nicht auf der Schrift, sondern unter ihr, not on the Bible, but under it, when he was actually applying for a job in, uh, in Tübingen, in Germany. And uh, they were questioning him basically about his hermeneutics. What is it that you are going to do as a professor of New Testament? Are you going to critically examine the Bible from the vantage point of skepticism, of demythologization? Or are you going to teach uh, young people who are aspiring pastors to actually see this as a message from God that could challenge us <laughs> and cause us to, to change our minds? And so, so that's the framework from which I've been thinking through both the idea of intellectual humility, sitting under a text and letting it change our hearts, change our minds, uh, but also intellectual courage kind of goes with that. 
the ability to entertain an idea when it might be unfashionable, when it might be controversial, or different than the way I might be set up to think. So being able to walk in somebody else's shoes to entertain an idea, even if ultimately I will disagree with it, there's, there's the, those twin ideas of sitting under a text, that humility, but also the courage it takes in order to out encounter the different. Now, to Jason's point, I think it's the application of moral virtues to the intellectual realm, but it's not as though we are slaying dragons or, or doing military service that courage is being applied. It's, it's in the intellectual realm that they're being applied. Imagine being able to take your classroom or school to the next level. Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you to do just that. Educational Renaissance Books puts the tools into your hands so that you can become the master teacher God has called you to be. Learn more about our latest book by Jason Barney, A Short History of Narration, available now through our website or at Amazon.com. Well, and I think to build off what you're saying here too, in the realm of hermeneutics, some of the whole modern turn in this kind of modernist skepticism was to use Aristotle's virtue terminology, actually an enlargement of the task of scientific knowledge beyond its proper place. It was sort of like a puffing up of uh, scientific knowledge as the most and only important intellectual virtue without a legitimate understanding of one of Aristotle's other intellectual virtues, which is noose, understanding or intuition, and how that actually plays a crucial role. And so many of these um, modernist skeptics of the Bible weren't aware of their own pre-understandings, that they had to almost in faith take on this skeptical mindset toward the Bible and then seek to prove it. And so I think you have in seed form a good critique, intellectually speaking, of the problem that's going on there, because in essence, what Aristotle is saying by kind of delineating a difference between noose understanding or, or perception, which it perceives the first principles or particulars, kind of the starting points for reasoning, and then scientific knowledge after that, as a, a justified true belief, like demonstrating why you know something that you that you in fact know it to be true, is that you you can actually justify supposed truth in your mind through a reasoning process based on faulty pre-understandings or faulty perceptions of the way things are. And I, I think that's at least one way of orienting what's going on with a a lack of intellectual humility is that um, those uh, skeptics have taken this skeptical mindset or set of starting points, and then they've reasoned based on it. And often in, in the case of biblical criticism, developed elaborate superstructures of speculation in their modern scientific study of the Bible. And at least what we as believing Christians would contend and I believe for good reason, is that their starting points were inaccurate. They, they actually were founded on fundamentally wrong 
pre-understandings or beliefs. And that plays into the whole hermeneutical discussion because uh, part of the dialogue since has been around this idea of pre-understandings, which I'm trying to connect to Aristotle's intellectual virtue of noose. I think it is, I mean, I think it's, maybe we could say both things that they've lacked a proper noose They've lacked a proper uh, intuition for the way the world actually is. And in doing so, they've also become bombastic and prideful, intellectually speaking, in building up this scientific superstructure. Yeah, I think there's definitely a caution to, to what we are describing here is we often think about teaching our students critical thinking skills. And some of where that comes from is an empiricist kind of epistemology that would say the only way that we can know is through an empirical, rational understanding of truth, as opposed to, and this is really the important point, as opposed to justified belief. So that if I'm believing something that is from another mind, particularly divinely revealed, that would be considered an unjustified belief post-enlightenment where um, you really have to ground justified thought in principles derived from observation, from study, repeatability, all of those scientific tools that were elaborated in that philosophical tradition. And so as classicists, we really have this dynamic where we live in this world where what what really matters, so to speak, is being able to be conversant with this scientific model of knowledge and how we acquire knowledge, which is kind of what's meant by critical thinking. In some circles, what critical thinking means is we need to get our students to a place where they see how ridiculous it is to believe in Santa Claus and God. But I think there's another way that we could actually appropriate some of what is uh, brought forward by critical thinking in saying, actually, there are these moral virtues that would challenge us to say, we can't simply dismiss somebody else's arguments, whether they believe or don't believe, that we have to be charitable to others when they are interpreting the world around them in ways that might be different than, than the way we would, to ground what we're saying in reliable sources or in expert knowledge. So some of these things are part of what we're describing and what I think Aristotle might even say, of course we need to do those things, but in our modern context, there just feels like there's a greater burden placed on people who believe things to be able to justify their belief. And so I, I do think some of the articulation of critical thinking and intellectual virtues does provide a framework for us to be conversant with that scientific world while justifying our own beliefs in dialogue with it. Sign up for the Educational Renaissance newsletter 
Stay connected to the EdRen community to deepen your understanding of education and hone your craft as a teacher. The Educational Renaissance newsletter comes out every Saturday morning sharing each new blog post. Subscribers also get advance notice on special offers. We promise not to fill up your email with endless advertisements. Become part of the Educational Renaissance community. Subscribe today at educationalrenaissance.com. I think a helpful resource here is James Taylor's book, Poetic Knowledge, mm. because um, he he maps this whole tradition of poetic knowledge. And I think by his term, poetic knowledge, he actually engages with three or so of um, uh, Aristotle's intellectual virtues. The first being artistry or techne that like we encounter the world through making things of it creatively and that's a type of knowledge that hasn't been adequately accounted for in our modern era. There's also the how we act in the world, the, the kind of prudence or practical wisdom that we have about what ought to be done. That's a legitimate type of knowledge. And then what we've just been talking about, which is the intuition, the, the, the fact that we, even for our scientific reasoning, have to accept first principles and starting points through a type of perception of the mind where we grasp the starting points of things. And that's always within a tradition of belief is the fact of the matter. Like you, you don't just start as Descartes imagined from ground zero, assume that everything's a lie and then build it up through your cogito ergo sum. Like I think therefore I am. And then so I can build up this superstructure. That's just not how we work. We, we live with givens and we have to build on the givens with our minds. That's all we really can do. And, and of course we can accept the wrong givens or perceive things inaccurately. And that's where actually our perception ability is its own intellectual virtue. And you have to, in, in essence, do certain moral things and practices and activities to put yourself in the way of perceiving things the right way and as they really are. Mm -hmm. So it is this sort of wonderful intellectual catch-22 that we kind of find ourselves dropped in to a world as it is. We must perceive things to start, and then, but we must also be reasoning from the things we perceive at all times. And that's where the kind of hermeneutical spiral or, or feedback loop of life comes in, where you, you just got to keep thinking and questioning your questions and doubting your doubts and going further up and further in. And it is that sort of inevitable spiral into uh, true forms of knowledge or intellectual virtue. So, and, and, and to do that, you have to have moral virtues too, which is a way of kind of underlining and restating the, the opening of this dialogue that whether you call it intellectual humility or not, I would definitely concede that your being humble or not will impact your intellect. Your being courageous or not will impact your intellect. And this is, this is where you know, we're, we're holistic beings and every part of us virtue kind of is going to engage the other. And you can't have one huge vice, whether of the intellect or of the heart or even spiritually and see something truly. And, and that's where, you know, if we want to throw into our moral intellectual virtue dialogue, the spiritual virtues of, of faith, hope, and love, maybe you can't actually perceive the truth intellectually unless you love 
like not knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so the, the moral and spiritual virtue of humility and love for others is necessary to a right knowledge. Otherwise, knowledge puffs you up. So there, there's a lot of kind of back and forth here. Well, Patrick, I, I want to ask you, are you, are you convinced? Um, should we keep separate the intellectual and moral virtues and sort of a hard distinction in the way Aristotle wrote about and Jason is sort of reviving for us this morning, or can we bring them together in more of a cohesive whole? I think one of the risks in in over-integrating them is we lose the intellectual at the expense of the moral or vice versa. That's You have the risk on that side. Alternatively, if you over-separate them, you lose the fact that we are unities as persons. Uh, and so, Patrick, what do you think? Yeah, I think here's where the differentiation could be helpful, is oftentimes when we're thinking about cultivating moral virtue, we are thinking about things like, how is this child being kind to their classmates? Are they being timely in arrival? There's just a lot of embodied ways that we we tend to think about moral virtues. But a lot of the work we do in a classroom, while there are opportunities for moral growth, in our intellectual work, there are actually some specific ways in which we're doing a lot of reading, writing, expressing that are also virtuous in some way, or we could say virtue ethics plays into it in certain ways, where we would be mindful of, it's not just about getting a right answer or about following the MLA style guide effectively. We might be mindful of ways in which we can promote certain values and say, we're going to debate a topic and I'm actually going to put you on the team that's defending actually the opposite of what you believe, you know, because that's going to take humility and courage to defend what you currently think is the indefensible. And, and so that debate is going to enliven actually your moral life because you have to take up a position that you otherwise wouldn't take or uh, to receive feedback this claim you're making isn't grounded in a reliable source. So I now have to challenge you to actually submit to the reliability test, right? <laughs> and go find either a reliable source or change your claim. And so the, these are actual virtues that we're cultivating as we're teaching them how to read effectively, write effectively, and not just waiting for a moment when they might be dishonest in class or unkind to a table partner or something like that. And it's interesting with your first example, Patrick, of how you framed that in such a way as to develop virtue when the task of potentially arguing for either side was used in a negative way in the tradition by the sophists as that you you can, through rhetoric, trick and get whatever you want out of either side. And so it's like what you're illustrating there is that 
actually every intellectual virtue has moral implications depending on how you frame and see what a person is doing and why. Um, because whenever we're thinking, we're also acting and choosing. And so it's like, it's complicated because all these things are interrelated. And I, I think this is actually maybe a, an area of future um, study and reflection for us as classical Christian educators, because we've talked a lot about the integration of subjects, how all of the subjects of study are part of one whole. And so we should integrate them. But maybe we haven't always reflected on how our ends or goals, how the moral, intellectual, and spiritual spheres of our students are interrelated and interconnected so that you can't just just train the intellect. You're always also impacting the heart by how you frame things for students. And and if you don't have that spiritual frame of reference as well, we're going to be missing something. And you know, this is this problem of, of the fact that, you know, head, heart and spirit are interacting and, and hands as well with what we create, I think is is one of the challenges I've brought up with our world of Bloom's taxonomy, where we've got Bloom's taxonomy of cognitive domain goals, like in our in the very architecture of what we're doing so that we think we're just isolating the cognitive intellect all at, at, at this particular time or another. And then, oh, yeah, well, we could do affective domain stuff as they sort of, uh, you know, gestured to as an afterthought or psychomotor development. But it really doesn't work that way. It really is integrated. And that's one thing that the more I've looked into kind of thinking through, uh, at least in neo-Aristotelian terms from a Christian perspective, is that ah, there's something really going on there because Aristotle recognized how the moral virtues kind of lead up into one of the intellectual virtues of prudence which yeah, you know, we might've called practical wisdom or prudence a moral virtue, but he's saying, no, prudence is the, the intellectual virtue that governs all the moral virtues through the mind, governing the heart in, in, in reason. And in a similar way, I think we see kind of hints in the New Testament of how spiritual virtues impact and color and integrate both moral and intellectual virtues so that like our wisdom, like we could be wise in our own eyes and, and in the understanding of this age, but we need that wisdom be, to be transformed from a, a Christ-centered, a cross-centered perspective and how our, even our intuitions or our frames of reference, like our need to be rethought once we receive the gospel, according to Paul in first Corinthians. And so I, I think this kind of integration of the the moral, intellectual, and spiritual realms is a really interesting and fruitful place to go in the future. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, 
then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. So uh, I, I know we're trying to, to wrap up here, but uh, you guys are just, my mind's churning now. And, you know, as someone who's trying to live virtuously, you know, I'm going to have to be thinking now about whether I'm, you know, living morally or intellectually virtuously or striving to do so. <laughs> um, quick question, just as we wrap up here. So chair making, Jason, if I remember correctly, one of the five intellectual virtues is techne, um, the ability or skill to make stuff, right? It's the, it's the how-to knowledge, right? So if I want to make a chair, you know, I'm, I'm basically trying to cultivate a particular techne of chair making. So I'm, I'm, I'm becoming intellectually virtuous as I grow in this skill of chair making. To do so, to embark on such a, a feat would require a certain amount of humility that I would want to call intellectual humility. Um, it starts with me admitting what I don't know about chair making. Um, and it even might require me to ask for help, which is also a form of humility. So th this example seems to really blur the lines for me between moral and intellectual virtue. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> okay, well, what I think is, that it's mixing up categories still to say it's intellectual humility. You should be humble, but that is a moral a, a, a moral state in which you you stand um, before what what you know you don't have, right? Like or something like that. And so, you know, to admit that you're wrong um, or that you don't know how to make a chair at the beginning of the endeavor is good and and morally praiseworthy but morally praiseworthy, not intellectually praiseworthy, because you don't, in fact, then have the intellectual virtue of craftsmanship to make a chair. Only if you actually possess the intellectual virtue of craftsmanship to make a chair, have you then attained that intellectual virtue and that particular intellectual virtue, right? So should you have that as a starting point and be a good learner? Yes. But I, I, I guess I wouldn't say that you have an excellence yet you 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 have the right openness for developing an excellence does does that make sense to yeah yeah that's that's really helpful um it seems that in your in your model um there's a there's a a moral humility at play that allows me to say i don't know but the intellectual virtue of craftsmanship doesn't kick in until I'm actually beginning to gain that skill of the chair making. Yeah, to to use that term technically uh, um, in terms mm -hmm. of how Aristotle does. And mm -hmm. I would contend for its helpfulness, but I'm not saying like I yeah. get mad and, you know, shake my fist anytime someone says something like intellectual humility or, or, or intellectual yeah. courage. I just interpret that phrase as saying, when you have moral courage for an intellectual task, uh, as opposed to saying that the intellect is actually perfected or have it has an excellence in that way yet. Well, I'll give Patrick the, the final word here, see if he has any final comments, and then I'll wrap things up. 
definitely think we should be making chairs as an intellectual pursuit. And actually, there are so many in the intellectual virtue world, humility and curia, uh, uh, courage are actually only a few of the intellectual virtues that scholars have talked about. There is curiosity and creativity uh, would be other intellectual virtues. And, and I think there is a synthesis that could be made between uh, this more modern or analytic philosophical understanding of uh, how virtue ethics could be applied to the intellect and uh, an Aristotelian understanding of the differentiation between moral and intellectual virtues, that it does take creativity and curiosity to build a chair, um, which might relate to, say, what Aristotle might define as de notes, uh, cleverness, uh, the ability to carry out an action with creativity to accomplish something. So that you could say techne, my ability to know how to create something actually intersects with some other capacity to be clever to accomplish that goal. So all of that to say that I, I think as we're thinking about training our students in how to think well, we have a, a panoply of ideas from the ancient world, but also from the modern world that could give us guidance on how to really train the intellect in a way that is connecting us up in the way that Jason describes, that it's not just mind work, it's also heart work at the same time. And your chair analogy brings out the hand work as well, that we are these unified beings and it all fits together. Paul, thank you both for this fascinating discussion this morning. I've really enjoyed it. In fact, if I were to give it a rating, it would probably be something like five stars. So listeners, if you agree with me here, if you would take a minute and go ahead and rate this podcast episode five stars, we would really appreciate it. We're Educational Renaissance and we're all about promoting a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Please visit our website, educationalrenaissance.com for additional resources, blogs, um, webinars, and downloadable eBooks, as well as books for purchase. Thank you and have a great day.